Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance? Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with GoldStar.com. GoldStar is in 26 cities around the country, with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to GoldStar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind. Expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, she produced the first play I ever did in New York and over a hundred other plays. Welcome Tony Award-winning producer Daryl Roth to the podcast. My guest today is the award-winning producer, Daryl Roth. Daryl is honored to hold the singular distinction of producing seven Pulitzer Prize-winning plays and is the recipient of 10 Tony Awards and London's Olivier Awards. Highlights of her unbelievable life in the theater include over 100 award-winning productions, both on and off-Broadway, and some of them, and I mean only some of them, include Kinky Boots, Carolina Change, The Humans, Clybourne Park, The Normal Heart, A Raisin in the Sun, August Osage County, War Horse, Wit, The Year of Magical Thinking, and Delaguarda, which ran for seven years as the inaugural production at the Daryl Roth Theater. 
a landmark building in Manhattan's Union Square that holds her name and is constantly a site of the most groundbreaking productions going on in New York theater. Currently in her theater is Gloria, a life and coming soon, Accidentally Brave, a one-woman show written by the actress and one of my dearest friends, Maddie Corman. Daryl is also the producer of one of the very first plays I ever did in New York. It was called Schmulnick's Waltz, and it remains a highlight and a touchstone when I think back to my beginnings. And it is so meaningful to me to welcome my beloved friend, Daryl Roth, to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Alana. I feel like it's history in front of our eyes. It is. Like, this is your life. I know. It really is. It's such a remarkable thing. And you know, you and I have had the great fortune of being able to see each other every so often at some beautiful gala or beautiful play and sort of touch base with each other and kind of check in. And it always warms my heart to see that the fire with which you started all of this oh, um, remains as hot as it ever <laughs> was in terms of your burning passion to create theater that... Um, leaves people different when they leave than maybe who they were when they walked in, even if they don't even know it yet. Um, I had I Jordan. you're saying that, it's actually. It's true. It's true. I mean, Jordan Roth, who you guys have heard on this podcast a few episodes back, um, we sang your praises for much of the time that he was on the show. Um, it is a really beautiful thing that a mother and son have kind of shared such a love and passion for something. And I can't wait to talk about what it is to like do the thing and then get to do it with your son. Um, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how the performing arts and arts in general entered your world? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, not far from the city, which was my good fortune. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my parents loved theater, especially musical theater, was really a gift to both my sister and myself because we would come to New York and we would see shows from the time I can remember. Do you remember the first show you saw or one of the earlier? One of the early shows I saw was a production of Peter Pan, actually. And the magic of theater just started at an early age for me. And when I was old enough to travel to New York from New Jersey on my own, I would get on the bus and I would come and see a matinee and I just really felt transported um, you know, I come from a very strong family. There was lots of love and lots of support. But I wasn't particularly uh, comfortable in my school. I was the only Jewish person in my school at the time. And Were you in a public school or a I was in a public school, school uh -huh. but the community that we lived in, Wayne, New Jersey, at the time... Uh, was Jew deficient. I would say that's one way to put it. Yeah. But I always had a strong sense of myself and a strong sense of my... Um, you know, my history because of my parents. Mm -hmm. And in any event, I did feel like an outsider, which, you know, looking back, I realize has influenced so much of what I choose to produce. Sure. Um, but theater was always part of my life. Then I jumped forward to college. I didn't study anything that had to do with theater. I just always read plays and I always came, you know, as, as just an awesome, devoted, grateful audience member. So you never wanted to be a performer? Never. And never did? And never did. Well, let's not rule out the camp show at Camp Akiba when I, I was a hot box girl. But other than that, no. <laughs> I will not. And gosh, I wish there were tapes somewhere <laughs> Thank God of not. that performance. <laughs> but I had always just this love and, and fascination with watching theater and wondering, how does this happen? How mm -hmm. does it all come together? And that kind of was my, my mantra for many, many years, but never had a thought that I would actually figure out a way to insinuate myself into the business of theater. Right. Until I was in my 40s, actually. I did study art history in college. I thought I would have a career somehow connected to the cultural arts, for sure. Where did you go to school? My... I went to Syracuse University, okay. and then I transferred and actually graduated from NYU. Okay, so you got yourself back to Manhattan. As quick as I could. Yeah. And loved it and have always felt... While my upbringing is in New Jersey, I feel that's all part of mm -hmm. the New York metropolitan area. So yeah. I think of myself in that way. And um, So what did you do career-wise? First of all, you're married yeah. to Stephen Roth, who's a very well-known real estate developer. Yes, Is that the exactly. term for an actress who knows nothing about real estate? That's what he is. Um, did you guys meet when you were in school, or was that a later meeting? Uh, we met after I graduated from college. I was working in New York, and I was fixed up on a blind date 
with him. And we've been married for 49 years, actually, which is a long time. That (laughs) should... There should be awards for that as well, don't you think? That would be the Tony (laughs) Award. Longest running marriage, exactly. (laughs) That is not always easy. So, you moved to New Jersey and raised your kids in New Jersey. That's right. So, I lived in New York during the NYU days. And after NYU, I worked. Stephen and I were married. We lived in the city for another few years. And when my daughter Amanda was born, uh, we chose to move out of the city. And I was happy that I did. I think both Amanda and Jordan had a very healthy, mm-hmm. balanced upbringing. And I don't regret that at all. Did you try to choose a neighborhood where you wouldn't be the only Jewish family? Was that part of your thinking when you moved there or not necessarily? It was part of my thinking, but times had changed from mm-hmm. the days when I grew up to when we were married and moving with a young family. So it wasn't as much an issue at that point. Um, but we always you know, believed in going to temple and our children both have carried on that tradition with their own children. So I feel very grateful about that. Right, that that lineage continued. Yes, and it's important to all of us. So that part is good. Were you working or were you raising your children? I was working as an interior designer in my own firm. Okay, so you started that yourself. I did. I have always felt entrepreneurial in in small ways and then larger ways in my life. I guess it's because I wanted to be able to have a schedule that would allow me to be at home and be with my children when, you know, school was over and we had activities to share. I didn't want to not be there, but I did want to work and I did feel the need to, you know, be involved in the world. And so at that point, that was a really wonderful profession for me. I did primarily office interiors and it was good because of what I mentioned. I could make my hours. I would, you know, run into New York. I would work with clients, but I would always be home at the end of the day to greet my children when they came home from school. And that's what I wanted. So it was a balance for me that worked. I'm not saying that everyone has to find that particular balance, what works for people or what their needs are, are totally different, and I support that. But for me, that's what worked. And then as my children got older and Amanda was going off to college, Mm -hmm. really jumping ahead chapters by chapter. I know. It's so frustrating. I wish we could do it all in real time. I know. Do you have 40 years? I have hopefully Do you have an more. appointment? <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, I don't, you mean left? I don't no. mean tracing no, don't. the veins in your hand. I just mean in terms of where you have to be after. Anyway, yes. So Amanda went off to college, and Jordan was already enrolled in a school in New York, Horace Mann. And so much of my life was in New York. And at that point, we left New Jersey, and we moved to New York. Oh, you moved back here. We moved okay. back to New York, which made it a lot easier for me to be involved in theater because of the hours, as you know. And I just felt more comfortable here at that point. But I don't regret for one moment raising my children in New Jersey. Uh, I think the country, I think the backyard, it sounds so corny. But, you know, it just worked for us. Yeah. Were you helping? Did Stephen take over the world of real estate? Was that something that was in his family when you met? Or is that something he started? No, that's something he did on his own. I mean, he's really remarkable in that regard. He started... um, his own business when we were first married. You know, basically he had two nickels to rub together. Right. He was tenacious. He's very smart. And he had a feel for this industry. And so... Were you a part of that with him? Or was that more his thing and you offered support and counsel, but not on the ground running with him? Um, I think that's right. I did have some good ideas that actually came to fruition. I remember one big idea was passing. (laughs) When we still lived in New Jersey, we... um, had this big Alexander's shopping. Yes, I can picture the mural. That's on right. It. That yes. beautiful. I'm a Jersey mural. girl. That's yes. right. I know that. I think Alan Alden and I talked about that same mural. How it was sort of the only art. <laughs> it was this beautiful <laughs> piece of art in the middle yes. of Route 17. Exactly on the wall of a, you know, a, a retail store. store. Yeah, department store. But it was so interesting because I kept saying to Stephen, you know, now that's that's a nice piece of land to develop, and and then we sort of got one thing led to another, and he ultimately. Uh, took over that company. And the Alexander's that is most memorable in this story is the one on 59th Street, which became uh, Bloomberg Tower, which Stephen developed. Oh, my God. So the little idea of, yeah, it's a nice piece of land here. Yeah. And there have been other things that I hope I will be uh, acknowledged Mm -hmm. for, shall we say. But Stephen's business is really his own. He started it and he grew it into um, the company that it is now, which is quite remarkable. Yes. And one of the things that I just love about your trajectory is that 
you know, we're often told, stay in your lane, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you've made a choice. You're an interior designer. You're an interior decorator. Like, that's who you are. And every time we try to shift to the left or right, even if we politely put our blinker on, everyone just wants us to stay where we are. And, you know, I, I... don't know if you heard, I recently had Mary Steenburgen on my show, who at 50, along with her glorious career as an actress, has become one of the most beloved singer-songwriters in Nashville. She just took on this whole other thing. It could have worked. It could have not worked. But she had this idea and didn't decide, like, oh, no, I'm 50. It's too late for me to change, you know, my name tag. Mm -hmm. So you're in your 40s. You have established yourself as someone who who is a go-to person in the world of interior decorating, and it gave you a lot. How did you decide, A, I want to, like, go back to this thing I've always loved, and how did you first, what was your first, like, toe dip in the water with theater? Well, I would step back and say that I wasn't as fulfilled or satisfied uh, in with that the other. world. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to say, what would make me happy? What would make me feel fulfilled? And what did I feel I could actually do that would, you know, create an environment that would uh, facilitate a happier self, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't know if I had what it takes to be a producer. I to actually, be Daryl Roth. I didn't even know what a producer did, to tell you the sure. truth. I mean, in those days, and as you say, I was in my 40s, so it's some time ago, they didn't have courses as they do now to teach you. Right. And so it's really instinct that one goes on. And I relied on that actually to this day. But something you said about your interview with Mary strikes me too, because I always like to say that it's never too late to start something and it's never too early to start mm-hmm. something, you know, for young people that really have an idea of where they want to go and they think, well, maybe I should be older. Maybe I should wait. Maybe I should do this or that. I say, go for it. Mm-hmm. You know? And basically, my career got started much like the Nike commercial. I just did it. Okay. I really just did it. I had no idea. I had no mentors. I had no learning in the traditional sense about producing. Right. But I think that my passion for it, and I think I, I knew enough about the kinds of subjects I wanted to be responsible for putting out into the world, that was clear. And... I think I wasn't afraid to fail, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that people have to be very mindful of in any business, in any endeavor. Right. Don't be afraid to fail because, A, I think we all realize you learn more when, when you do not succeed for right. the next time. Yeah. And that it, it builds strength and, and sort of fortitude within. So if you're not afraid to fail, you're, you're much more open to try things. And I think at any age, if you have that yearning or if you have that desire and and you feel that it's really important to give it a try, go for it. So obviously you had support in your family life. I did have that support. And I also had the beginnings of getting to know people. So how did that happen? My first entree was uh, being invited onto the board of City Center, which at the time was organizing what we all know and love and has become the Encore series. Okay. And so I was put on that little committee, and happily, the person who was the professional, quote-unquote, on the committee was Richard Malpe Jr., who is just such a wonderful person and such, you know, a welcoming soul, so that when I joined the committee and I was working on the plans that City Center was... was um, introducing. Richard and I became friendly. And one night he said, you know, David Shire, my writing partner, and I have some songs that are being presented downtown at a club called 88s. Would you like to come? Well, I thought I died and went to heaven. Yeah. And I said, of course, <laughs> yes, I would love to. Thank mm-hmm. you. And I went down to the club with them that night. And there was a presentation by four very talented singers singing songs about going through changes in life. Doors that were closed were opening. Roles were reversing between parents and children. Uh, Starting something that you'd always dreamed of doing. And I thought, how did I get in this place at this moment in time? I thought every song was talking to me directly. And it was just kind of this revelation. At the end of the evening, 
I like to say, a voice inside me who is not related to me, apparently, said to Richard But lives David, inside you. <laughs> somehow managed to get inside me. Yeah. Said to David and Richard, I just love this. Would you let me figure out how to produce this? Right now, it was a series of songs. Okay. And I guess they looked at me quizzically but said, sure, sure. Go for it. Go for it. And that was the first thing I produced. It was a beautiful little show called Closer Than Ever. Yes, that it's lived on. Everyone knows now. Now everyone knows. It's had a wonderful birthing at Williamstown. And I remember taking Jordan with me that summer when we were performing and and developing it further. It was sort of his little summer camp, and he became friendly with David's son. It was just this wonderful experience, and that was in 1988. I can barely believe it. Yeah. So that was my first dip-toe in the water. Right. And it turned out that we moved from Williamstown to the Cherry Lane Theater, and we had a wonderful you know, environment there. It was off-Broadway in the West Village. It was a very vibrant time for off-Broadway. And people loved, loved, loved the show. Yeah. But my first hard lesson came with this production. The reviews were, for the most part, good, but... I wouldn't say raves. Mm-hmm. And I was there every evening. I would stand in the theater and I would see people loving it and, you know, tearing up and feeling emotionally connected to the songs. And I knew that I had something there, but business was slow to build. Right. And I was advised that we would probably be best to close. Uh, being advised only in the financial, sure, you know, area. The business perspective. The business perspective, which I must say was a stab in my heart because there was no way that I had any hope of closing this show if I was going to be a producer and the fact that I believed in it and the fact that I saw people loving it. I knew it would take time. So the advice I got from the management that we had hired to work on the shows um, was close the show. You'll be better off. You got it opened. You go on to the next. And I realized that I had to stand behind my belief. Right. And so I said, you know, I know you have years of experience. I have months. (laughs) But I don't feel I can do that. I really know this is going to work, and I'm going to go for it. And whatever the financial losses are, I'm making that commitment to cover it. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I have to disagree with your advice as well, given as I know it is. Okay. By the way, this could be indecent. It could be everything. I mean, right? I mean, just that certainty and passion and willingness to risk your own investment for something you believe in. I think that it it is, and I've always said that theater deals in a different currency. It's never all about the money. I want to be financially responsible. I don't want to be foolish about other people's money. Especially when you're asking others to join you. Exactly. But if there is something that's a risk that then has to have a decision, as Indecent Mm -hmm. did at that moment, I can step up on my own and not risk anybody else's money, but do what I believe is the right thing to do. And so the lesson of Closer Than Ever has really stayed with me. It's basically just go with your gut. And I tell this to people who might ask or be interested in my career. Yeah. You know, just trust yourself because you can look for support and encouragement from everyone around you. But at the end of the day, you have to make your own decisions and you have to be secure in knowing that if it's a misstep or if it is the wrong decision, you have no one to blame. Yeah. You've done what you felt was right. And I try to live by that. I try to share that advice. I don't mean for people to be foolhardy. Yeah. But trust yourself and be brave. Well, first of all, the Cherry Lane Theater is one of the most beautiful New York City intimate theaters. And if you're standing in that space and feeling what you're feeling, there's no newspaper or consultant that can prove to you that what you're feeling isn't actually happening. That's so true. And so... That's so true. That's true in any theater, yeah. I feel. You know, you're in a space, you're you're involved in experiencing something in front of your eyes. Right. And you either feel it or you don't feel right. it. And you felt like, hey, there's a community in this room and they're having a communal experience. Yeah. So the show ended up like how long after did it continue? What happened? Well, I like to say that it was really my birthing other than my two gorgeous, wonderful children, (laughs) because it ran for nine months. Unbelievable. (laughs) Exactly nine months. Yeah. And it was born into the world. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on for all these years. Yeah. It was wonderful that RCA decided to record 
closer than ever. They weren't really excited to do off-Broadway recordings in those days, but they did take a chance they on this. They preserved it. And they preserved it, and that's why I think it's had such a great life over all these years. That is extraordinary. Yeah. And then you also saw, like, you took your own pulse, and it was, the beat was right. Like, you were right. It was for me. Yeah. It was for me. And then I went on to do other shows that uh, had a bit more risk involved. I think that my career is. um been really joyous for me, but a lot of people wouldn't have chosen the place that I've chosen. Um, and in part, that was purposeful because I wasn't in a position to be in competition with other producers at that point. I was just starting and I, I just felt that I had to find my own way. And so I decided my personal mission in my own heart and mind would be plays about women, mm-hmm. plays about gender, obviously, um, plays about my Jewish tradition and family situations. And, right. and that kind of has stayed with me for these 30-some-odd years. Yeah. That is what I decided to do. That's where I felt I could offer whatever I had to offer. I felt comfortable in those spaces. And it was important for me as a woman, sort of later, you know, starting a career in theater later in my life, to kind of decide what road I would travel. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't want to be there for people to call on and say, "Oh, do you want to invest in this? Do you right. want to write me a check. That? Yeah. Write me a check." I just thought I had to make make my map, and that was my map, and it's remained the same. What I wanted to share with listeners is that when I did this play with music by David Shire, just coincidentally, that um, Daryl and I talked about earlier, Schmolnik's Waltz. The thing that was amazing um, is that. When you think about all the different, you know, producer is a word that conjures a million different, it really can't be defined any one way. It really is the most adaptable title um, in any, whether it's film, television, or, you know, who you decide to be, right? There's the producer who is a producer in credit. They've written a check and it entitles them to this many opening night tickets and, and this you know, credit in the in the, play in the playbill. Exactly. When you do a play with Daryl Roth, <laughs> my play started uh, at the Jewish Rep, and then we moved off Broadway. and And I know this is true for um, Brendan Urie would say this, who just did Kinky Boots. You're not just a producer; you are um, the most maternal, warm in the dressing room, saying hello fixing my wig pin <laughs> that's sticking out in the back even though the wig master was just there like there's a way in which you know my earliest memory of you is coming in Jordan often with you coming backstage just to say hi and the way when you hear most producers are in the theater or want to come backstage you kind of shake in your boots like oh no mm-hmm. um it was the opposite it was like the most loving warm you know, it smelled like fresh baked chocolate chip cookies, like everything about it just gave you this feeling of safety. And you created an environment where all of us wanted to do our best because we wanted to please you um, the way you do a parent that you admire and love. Um, But also, you know, when I think about your history as an art history uh, major or or interest in art history and then your design, like your aesthetic has always been as much a part of the experience as the raising of the money and finding the theater and who's going to be the general manager. Like, I just remembered you'd walk around the set and you would just have like, maybe if we just put the desk there. Like there was just this way in which in this very, it's very tricky because you also want to make sure everyone feels like they are doing their job well. And I always watched you, and I went on to do some producing myself, and always tried to channel your ability to make everyone feel like they were doing a beautiful job, and your faith in them was 100%, and just a sweet little suggestion where no one felt threatened. And that, I'm going to take the sweet out, a suggestion where you felt respected, and actually that's a great idea. And your ability to do that, to negotiate all the personalities, and every department is a very fickle personality, with such grace and dignity and respect. Um, you know, I was young, and I was watching you and learning from you in every way, with men who might be a little gruff, 
with women who might have been threatened, with designers who might have been a little bitchy, like just all these people. And you were always like, I don't know, you just never wavered from who you were. I really appreciate your saying that. I've tried to take what I think are the important qualities in dealing with people from kind of my family experience. You know, I do want to be thought of as the mother who's going to protect and take care of you and and make sure that, you know, things are as comfortable and as good as they can be. I think that's really part of the job that that I actually treasure. But I also feel... And demanding I, I, uh, a certain level of, a complete level of professionalism and quality. Yes, I don't want anyone to feel that I'm sitting in judgment in a way that would would weaken their uh, their feelings and their confidence. Right. To me, that would be devastating. But I do feel that I, I want people to know that I care so much about them. I care about what this is that we're all doing together. So I care about what we've committed to with each other. Right. And I want it to feel very much like I'm not management. You know, there are some productions that I realize are set up in a way where there's management and then there's the artistic. And they're very different. I don't believe in that. I believe in in everyone is here together for the same cause, for the same reason, with the same passion and with the same vision. We all want it to be as good as it can be. And we all want to feel as good as we can about each other. When you did know. you decide to have your own theater? How long oh. into the process were you like, one thing I know I can do is have a place where at least I know I can do my shows and there's a theater available? It's interesting because when I first realized that that Off-Broadway was very special for me, I think because of the kind of work I wanted to do, it was more intimate perhaps or would would thrive in a smaller space. The Paula Vogels of the world. Exactly. At that point in my career, I didn't really have my eye on Broadway. I just had my eye on doing wonderful work and and sometimes it was meant to be in a more intimate space. Off-Broadway was thriving and there really were not enough theaters. Mm. And I would walk the streets thinking, hmm, I wonder if that storefront could be a theater. Yeah. Hmm, I wonder if that old church that doesn't seem to be, you know, vibrant and in use anymore could be. And I've one day actually walked past the Union Square Savings Bank and there was a sign on the side of the wall and it said for sale. And I thought, wait a minute, am I having like a mirage here? Right. What, what am I looking at? Yeah. And I took down the number of the real estate agent, and I went home. And, of course, because Stephen's in the business, I said, do you know this fellow? He's advertised that this gorgeous Union Square Savings Bank is for sale. Can you imagine? Called him up. Indeed, was for sale. We started our conversation. It, it's a landmark building. It's beautiful. It's, it's as you know, standing majestically right at yeah. the front of Union Square. And I thought, this is what a theater could be. This building could be a temple for theater. Yeah. That's what it felt to me. And we were able to purchase it. And I had all these great schemes about making it a beautiful, proper theater. Mm-hmm. And fate interfered in a way that turned out to be just glorious. Which was? I got a call from David Binder, a young direct, a young producer. He said, I heard that you just bought this wonderful building, and I have this very interesting sort of acrobatic, exciting performance art piece. I don't know how to describe it, but I'd like to show it to you and think, would you take it into the theater? And I said, well, from that description, I think we just have to see it. Yeah. So send over the tapes. And the videotapes were of Della Guarda. I remember calling Jordan to come watch it with me because I he had David had mentioned to me that it was very youthful and you know I wanted his opinion would this be something exciting? Well, we were blown away. It was the craziest thing yeah. I ever saw. Defies description and gravity. Way. Defies yeah. gravity, which <laughs> exactly. was one of their. We should write lines. a song called "Defying Gravity." Let's talk about what that after. <laughs> I knew we'd work together mind. again. Yeah, yeah. I would love that. Well, so, we will. The beauty of the building before I had renovated it, um, and in fact, it's not been renovated in all these almost 20 years, mm. is that it was open with very, very high ceilings. And Della Guarda, for those that don't know, right. was about flying and, right. and jumping through space. And so it fit the space beautifully. It stayed for years and years and years. And when it closed, they created another show called Ferza Bruta, which came in and stayed another seven years. Unbelievable. And in between all that, I thought to myself, 
hmm, I'm not really doing the theater that I had in mind, though I'm thrilled yeah, to have exciting, exciting tenants. And it brought a lot of international audiences to the space because uh, it was music and and you know, visual and physical, but there were no words. Exactly. So there was no language barrier. Wow. And it was very exciting for me to see so many interesting people coming. So I decided that there was this little space behind the theater. It was actually a garage, but it was part of the parcel that we bought. Okay. And so I proceeded to make that into this little 99-seat theater, which we named the DR2. And that is where I started doing a lot of smaller plays. And then after Delaguarda and Fertzabruta ran their course, we went back to producing, you know, I guess what traditional. Say, traditional theater. Right. And right now, uh, Gloria, A Life, the play that is about the iconic Gloria Steinem is in the space. And just jumping ahead to that for a moment, Gloria had always believed that people should talk in circles, that communication is meant to be shared in circles and that people are linked, not ranked, which is her very prophetic line. And so we created a space in the inside this wonderful flexible space that is a circle. Mm-hmm. And the play takes place in the round and then the talking circle which is act 2 offers people the opportunity to say anything and everything in response to the play or talk about feminism, talk about their own experiences. The beauty for me is seeing mothers and daughters and grandmothers and generations of people, mostly women, although we welcome men with open arms, but It's just been such a joy to see what this space has become and has offered. It's really offered so much, I think, to the city that is outside of the box, really outside of the box. Creative people can come and just imagine whatever it can be, it can be. So that was a gift, really, that I have to thank Stephen for helping me facilitate, which he did. And it also gave me a different perspective of what theater could be and, and how theater could uh, be created. Were so that you was good. Nervous about calling it the Daryl Roth Theater? I wasn't nervous. That's not the word I would use. I gave it a lot of thought and months of consideration because I didn't want it to feel gratuitous and I didn't want it to feel that I was patting myself on the back mm-hmm. and, you know, being, you know, blowing myself up and and being egocentric. I didn't want it to be that. But I did take a page out of Lucille Lortel's Book of Life. Yeah. And if you remember, she was this wonderful woman who was actually crowned the queen of off-Broadway in her day. But what she did was develop new writers. She supported new writers, new plays. She gave people opportunities that, that no one in her day was actually thinking of. And and that, legacy and that legacy is extraordinary. And for me to know her and to have had the wonderful opportunity of, of doing a number of plays at the Lortel Theater, I talked to her about it, and she said, Honey, <laughs> you should be proud of the fact that you can do this, yeah. and you should inspire other women by doing it. And that kind of clicked with me, and I thought to myself, I have to get over myself. It's not about me. It's about showing people that... Uh, this can be done, and you can do it with grace. You can do it with gratitude. It's not about ego. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it perhaps would inspire other people to say, I can put my name on this. I I can do this. And talk about full circle, pardon the pun, with you describing the glorious show being in a circle, but the idea of someone who really was a mentor and historically will be the, the, the face and mother of feminism for many generations to come, that right now that show and who she was and sort of all those yep. messages um, for young people. Well, that's the beauty of is really extraordinary. Like that, really, yeah. For me too, because I know there are certain nights that Gloria comes and leads the talking circle and you just, you hear the gasp of the people in the audience that they're and actually in up. her presence. Of course. And it's Gorgeous. Well, she's a living legend. She I is mean, a living how legend. How many living legends? I mean, we just lost Carol Channing. There, there are these people yeah. who defy time and and whose legacy and impact is just yeah. impossible to to put into words. What was uh, the first play you did when you? I didn't realize that those two the, that space behind the. You know, first of all, I just read this huge book about Broadway, the history of the musical 
theater. And what's really interesting to me in terms of the real estate conversation, in terms of the history of Broadway, is that really no one went above 14th Street for a very long time. That's right. Everything, Broadway as we know it, was 14th Street and below. No one dared to go above. Uptown. Exactly. So the idea that your theater is literally on the street, I know the Variety Theater much further East, yes, um, might have been one of you know the original maybe vaudeville houses. That there were vaudeville to... houses, and there was Yiddish theater. Yes, so uh, you are in the heart of your own history. It's so beautiful where our families came from Ellis Island to live in New right. York back in the day. It's just such a beautiful, and of course now it's so cool. Yeah, you know, I mean, sure, it really has yeah. gentrified in yes. ways that we would never believe. Exactly. But exactly. what I love about the space also this this neighborhood. It has the Vineyard Theater is mm-hmm. right there. CSC is a few blocks away. And I don't know, I feel like it's an anchor, that the building is an anchor and kind of a beacon in a way for for downtown theater. No, it is because everyone else made those buildings into, I know they converted you know, them. Or, or they're, you know, if you're doing a gala for your benefit, you, I mean, they're beautiful spaces, um, but no. they're not making things. So I'm happy to have it. I'm happy to have it. And I, I feel that I haven't even produced that many plays of my own there because a lot of people it's appreciate the, the space fit. and they want to rent. So what it, so was I love the first that. play that you produced in your theater? Do you remember? Or oh, or if it's not well, the it first earlier. it was and Fertz Bruta. But in terms of like uh, finding a, a writer. Yeah. I didn't produce it, but uh, Striking 12 was there. I, I know that I did other plays there that were, um, I'm trying to think back to what the first one was. No worries. So, you know, Anyone uh, who loves theater can't be immune to the joys of winning awards for theater because, if nothing else, there's the tradition of it, and then there's other people acknowledging how hard you've been working. Um, What was, maybe you will remember this, the first Tony nomination was for? First Tony nomination for me. Or I can rephrase, what was your first Tony? proof. Proof? I think it was proof. And your first win? Proof. And so you're standing. Listen, we all watch the Tonys every year. I love the Tony Awards. I think it's a real celebration of theater. And sometimes the competition is actually friendly competition. You know, everybody is on some level really rooting for each other. Yeah. Which I like. I mean, of course, you want your particular production to win. For lots of reasons. But it's a very... It's the one time a year that everybody is really together in the room and everyone's dressed up with, you know, with great hopes. And I know there have been years when, well, Kinky Boots, for example, um, you know, we weren't necessarily pegged to win. You know, it was a busy year, Mm -hmm. I have to say. Um, People didn't necessarily think we'd come away with the Tony, but we did. And I think I felt the love in that room and the way that you just can't imagine, even though, you know, the other shows that were nominated were wonderful and worthy and perhaps had a better chance. I think when it was announced and everybody stood up and cheered, I think it was just a brilliant moment. You know what I've always wanted to ask you about that show? How did the genius, genius idea of marrying Harvey Firestein and Cindy Lauper who made that shidduch, as yeah. my grandmother would say? Right. That shidduch was actually an idea that Harvey had and presented. We It started off, as you probably know, because the story is that I saw the film at Sundance, mm-hmm. fell in love with it, particularly the father-son story, which was the heart of it for me. And, you know, I called Jordan from Sundance, and I said, I've got to get the rights to this. I've got to get the rights to this. And he called Tom Schumacher, because mm-hmm. at the end of the film, the credits read, Miramax and Disney. Right. And it took about a year and a half to get the rights, but indeed I was successful. And that's and, the first time you you took a film, yes, uh, yes, and and adapted it, yes. And uh, Harvey, I thought would be the perfect person to write this, and I had reached out to him very early on. And you knew him already, or you had done something else prior, or just from being? I, I just knew him a little people. bit, and um, I knew him enough to feel to comfortable call making the call. Yeah. And the other thing is that Jordan's now husband, Richie Jackson, managed Harvey. So I had a direct Helpful. Route. Great. It was helpful. He knew his number. I knew how to find him. Exactly. And 
We worked together. Hal Luftig was my partner who I reached out to. Jerry Mitchell directed. Those were all the beginnings. And we tried to find a lyricist and composing team that we liked, that we thought would be right. We went out to a number of very talented people. Yeah. Some established, some new. And we asked them to write a couple of songs for us, and we listened, and we just didn't feel it yet. And one day, we're sitting around the table again, you know, wondering who, who, who. And Harvey said, don't say no too fast. Just listen to me. I have this idea. He mentioned Cindy Lauper. We all said, oh, my God, kind of genius. We love her. She'd get this, but she's never written a musical. Right. I don't know. She was more than willing to write a few songs on spec, and we started the relationship, and truly, it was a gift. So the Talk idea- Talk about lightning in a bottle, lightning right? Those bottle. two. Did he know her? Had he worked with her? I don't know that he worked with her, but he knew her enough, and apparently knew that she was kind of interested in writing a musical, but it didn't happen yet. So it was just the way stars aligned, and they did. And it really, I think, was a wonderful gift to our show, but it was a good gift to her too because, you know, I think it broadened her her world in Absolutely. a way that that is just marvelous. And she's a wonderful person and a wonderful person to work with. Uh, she herself kind of got into the hearts and minds of these characters in a way that, you know, offered these songs that this I hope will last. Kind of forever. For sure. Now, the other story about Kinky Boots is Billy Porter. Yes. And when Jerry Mitchell approached you guys with the idea of Billy for this part, that's my understanding. He had had a prior relationship with him, or was it not Jerry's idea? Well, we we did casting with Bernie Telsey. Okay. And he brought in a number of wonderful, talented people. Okay. But Jerry did always think that Billy would be good for this. He hadn't been on stage in quite a while. It was really a comeback for him and a great role that he felt totally Game immersed in. Yeah. <clears throat> so it was the beginning of his chapter. Do you remember him coming into audition? I do. I do. Was Jordan, were you guys doing this together or was well, it Jordan more? Well, Jordan has always been my, you know, my sole advisor in ways that, you know, are just countless and hard to mention because, yeah. you know, we just talk. A, as mother and son, but B, you know, I ask for his advice and I, I ask for his counsel. And, you know, it's someone that I just trust in a way that, you know, is because we're family, I suppose. Because I said to him, I remember when I auditioned for Rocky Horror Picture Show uh-huh. and seeing you guys behind the table together. And I'm like, he's 15. And I'm like, he's not 15. <laughs> he was he's a 16. Older, but it was not much older. <laughs> Just like, but that was his production, totally. Yes, but you were there. I was there. Yes, you know, just but it like was I would wild. be supportive of everything and yes. anything. Totally, but I just was, it was a very powerful thing as a, a friend of the yeah. both of yours to be there and just see that we were doing. Oh, just what a beautiful relationship. Well, that you that guys moment had. in time was great for me, too, because, of course, Jordan had just finished college and um, he came into my office at that point, And yet he produced Rocky Horror Show all on his own, but he was working out of my office, so we were together. Right. And that's post <clears throat> the Donkey Show, right? Yes. Like that had been his The Donkey first Show also yeah. was out of. Right that then. time, in that time frame. But he's just gone on to be so incredibly, um, you know, influenced, uh, influencing theater as a whole. I mean, just everything that he's done has been far and away more than anyone could have imagined. So, but both of you, I mean, if you take wit, I mean, just the, the far-reaching impact, like here's this play and Kathleen Chalfon and then Judith Light and all the people who've who've done it since. And then obviously years later it was done again. Um, and so a whole new audience got to see it. But not just was it a play that was riveting and emotionally compelling and devastating as an audience member, the impact it had on the medical community, just the ways yes. in which you have been able to take the thing and make it as a piece of art, and then the way in which the ripples um, of that piece of theater end up affecting communities that have nothing to do with the theater community. Well, that's the beauty of it, really, for me, too. And personally, one of the most satisfying things that happened with WIT, mm-hmm. we actually were able to bring scenes of the play and do them in hospitals so that 
uh, doctors and nurses and people, you know, uh, in that service business of treating for pe- treating people with, you know, devastating illness, had a sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens with the normal heart. When the normal heart, um, I-, I just can't tell you how many people thanked me for doing this revival and who went on to ask how could they help in their own communities. And even with Kinky Boots, and I, I should say not even, but especially Kinky Boots, it has changed minds. It has changed the way people think about other people. Mm-hmm. And it has empowered people to be their true selves. I mean, that's making big change. And in the world outside of theater, but that's how it can influence. With Indecent, the same thing happened. People wanted to go out and, and kind of... What could they take into the world that they learned from this moment in the theater, from this special experience, and make the world better? Can you speak to that specifically? Um, You know, it was a, to call it a Holocaust-based story is to to really miss out on all the nuance yeah, and, I think and artistry. Superficially, we might yes. have said, oh, it's a Holocaust. Right. Talk but, to me about that piece, and then when you say it's sort of how people go back out into the world with their hearts open. I think in the case of Indecent, it was about art. It was really about how much art matters in our lives. It was a troupe of actors that were just doing their craft and loving, loving being actors. And they performed in the Cedars Theater in New York. And then they moved uptown to another space and they were censored. And the play was considered indecent Mm -hmm. because two women kissed on stage Mm -hmm. and because it was the time in history that it was, these people were sent back to Europe and they all perished. But before they perished and they were in concentration camps, they would perform scenes from the play and it kept them alive and it kept the people that came to witness it, it gave them hope. Because it's the artistry and the art of it that mattered more than anything. And I think that... Was that based on a true story? It's based on a uh, Sholem, It's based on a play. But the fact that, that, is, that these actors, European actors, came to God America... God of Vengeance. But did that really happen? That that European actors of Jewish heritage were sent back to Europe I from America? I believe it is partly based in truth. It's the play God of Vengeance. Mm-hmm. And the way that Paula Vogel interpreted it and the way that Rebecca Tishman directed it brought to life that time in history and magnified how important art is in everyone's lives. When it was presented on Broadway, I have to say, people left feeling, as you said, open-hearted, but also willing to recognize the indecencies of the world and of people. And I believe that they would think about that. And that's where the change came, mm-hmm. right? And I think in the world right now, I'm very frightened about the rise of anti-Semitism. I don't think that we can, you know, turn a... Rest easy. No, we can't. We can't. But that play was about love in all forms. It was about following your passion. It was about justice and dignity. So that was that. I think The Normal Heart was another example where people would leave the theater and, and go volunteer for God's love or, or you know, go see what they could do for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. People were motivated to actually Well, and Larry Kramer action. would be standing, the, the, the yeah. author of the piece, if, you, if you're not aware of it, would be standing outside with the same activist, zealot, handing passion, out flyers. Like, but he wasn't done. Help. You saw the play. I'm not done. I have more not to tell done. you. Yeah. And unbelievable. It's also true of what's happening at Gloria right now because there are there are ways that we have been able to take Gloria's story and pass it on to the next generation. We started something called the Hopeaholics. That's a word that Gloria uses. And we wanted more young people and more students to see the show. And of course, you know, Ticket prices are an issue and getting it organized for them to come. So we said to the audience members, if you'd like to be a hopeaholic, you can sponsor a group of students. So far, people have opened their hearts and and underwritten student tickets, and we've brought in over 2,000 students in just a few months. So everybody wants to do something. People would see the show and say, I've 
got to have this class of students come and see this because you want to pass on what's good. You want to pass on stories about whose shoulders we all stand on. Sure. I think that's true of of Gloria. It's true of the normal heart. I think it's true of any play that offers you a way to see strength, a way to see uh, a guideline in life. You know, I think we're all kind of floundering in this world, and I believe now people are so divided that you need you need a moral path. You need the moral compass, and sometimes it needs to be presented to you. It needs to be shown to you. You need to learn from it, and I think theater does that beautifully. Do you ever feel you've been able to remain, as we said earlier, someone in a really um, long-lasting loving marriage, someone who has incredible relationships with her children and grandchildren, with a huge extended family of artists who come to feel like you are, you've welcomed them into your family. Um, You are involved in countless not-for-profits, countless outreach programs, countless ways to get people who might not easily walk into a theater box office and buy a ticket. You love animals. You did a documentary. (laughs) I mean, the level... I can't believe you remember that. (laughs) I do. I I do love dogs. I do, too. I have a little Shih Tzu, and I'm sad anytime she's not in the booth with me. I mean, do you feel stretched too thin ever and when you do how do you regroup how do you hit refresh for yourself well the simplest and easiest and most foolproof way is to spend some time with my dog (laughs) (laughs) there you go I mean there's nothing like a therapy dog Mm -hmm. but to answer your question in a different way I think I can refresh easily by taking a step back and thinking about what can I do next? Mm -hmm. If things get a little bit complicated and things get a little bit dark and heavy and gloomy for me, I just try to focus on, okay, what's next? What's the future holding for me? You know, is it a new play that I can get involved with? Or is it, you know, or can I join someone else who's, you know, let's say doing something that I really believe in is it that I need to go walk in the park? Mm-hmm. You know, is it something as simple as connecting with nature, which really works for me personally? Um, I know it's rather basic and simple. But it's true. But it really clears my head if I can take a walk, if I can be with my dog. And then, in all seriousness, spending time with my grandchildren is really kind of fabulous, yeah, too. Yeah, that must just be. I can't yeah. even imagine. I mean, I have a teen daughter now, and I think it's with a heavy heart sometimes. I'm like, wow, that. The next time I'm going to hold a baby that's as close to mine as possible is my children. And hopefully we're, that's in, in... Soon. Well, not soon. soon. <laughs> not in the teen mom, no. you know, TLC kind of show of it all. But but within my lifetime, I very much yeah. hope that happens. And um, I cannot even wrap my brain about what it must be like for your baby to have a baby. Like that whole thing just seems mind-blowing to me. In this landscape where we are now inundated with ways to connect with each other. So the internet is good and the internet is bad. I can only imagine the number of projects and ways in which people try to get your attention. Because as I read earlier, you have, you know, produced over 100 plays and have won just as many awards, basically, and have become known as um, an arbiter of good taste and elegance and passion. So how... How do you even, and I'm sure you have people helping you and vetting things for you because you're only one human with, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, two hands. But how do you know this is the one, right or wrong, whatever happens? How does Daryl Roth know? Well, I think I have to trust my instincts. I have to believe in the talent of the writer and also the personality of the writer, because I really want a relationship that is uh, collegial. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to work with people at this point in my life. You don't have to. I, it's not that I don't have to as much as I, I don't want to have. I don't want to have controversy in my life if I can avoid it. I don't want to have people that are negative in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to have. At this point, I just want to have things be 
as pleasant and as collaborative and so can you tell right away you're meeting with a writer or you've been set up with an agent or whatever? Yeah. I can tell if I connect with someone. I think anybody can in a normal course of a day. I can also, you know, know something about reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can feel I can feel the passion that they have for the piece. Or, um, But more to the point for me, I don't think you ever know. You just have to go with what your instinct is kind of tickling about, you know, and and if it's something that I really care about, basically, I only choose plays that I care about. Mm-hmm. There's something in the story. There's something in the characters. There's something in the relationships. There's something in the message that I feel I'm lucky enough to be a facilitator of because I have such great respect for artists, for sure. writers and directors and actors and designers. I mean, I'm in awe of their talent. So my luck in life in what I'm doing is to be able to help make what they do a reality. And are you someone who can see it on the page? Do you like someone to come have it read out loud for you? What's what's your, or, or is there no rhyme or reason in yeah. that way? I like to read a play first, and then I really like the opportunity to hear it out loud. Not read by the playwright, but I like to go to a reading and just sit among a group of people. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be read, especially for me, that makes everybody uncomfortable. So I would ask someone to plan a reading, and I'd like to attend, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the case of our friend Maddie Corman and her new play, Accidentally Brave, which is such a brilliant, brilliant title, I read the play. We heard about it, of course. Mm -hmm. She talked about it. And then I read the play, and then we did a reading of the play. And I just felt very connected because I know this woman, and I feel that what her story is is just so beautifully written so truthfully written um, that other people will benefit from it Mm -hmm. I think she will benefit from being able to tell this story and kind of release it into the world in a way that I am happy to help happen but I did I did think I saw that on the page Mm mm-hmm and I hope people will come and appreciate this story because while it is about a specific person's experience, I think there's a lot to be learned for all of us about how to deal with things when your life is upended mm-hmm. and how to carry on and how to forgive and how to maintain your family. There's so many life lessons in this play that this one story, though very personal, I think, is very universal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in choosing that, I think it was a combination of all the things we're saying. I know the person who wrote it, mm-hmm. and I know that we have a connection. Yeah, I read the play. I heard the play. And I love what it's about, and I want to share that. So, And you could. And I can. Do you feel successful? I do, actually. <laughs> I feel that I've accomplished my mission in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've raised beautiful morally sound, honest, decent, wonderful people. And dogs. And dogs. (laughs) And I think I've put some wonderful theater out into the world. Uh, I think I've had relationships that are uh, worthy of time. And yeah, I think I'm successful. You know, and success is such a variable. You know, what it means to be successful to one person is not what it means to be successful to another person. Um, But I think for what I've set out to do and uh, what I have done, I think I I would use the word. I would also use the word fulfilled, and I would use the word grateful. When you picture yourself in the back of the Cherry Lane Theater with Closer Than Ever almost 30 years ago and who that person is— and who you are now, what's the connective tissue Tissue. and what feels really different? Uh, The connective tissue is that I still feel the passion and the love of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is I have more confidence. I think that I have uh, less worry about what are other people saying or thinking. I feel my encouragement comes from within and not without. Wow. And I don't really need other people to say, good job. 
Well, I like people to say good job, but (laughs) I always like that. Everybody does. But I feel that I can trust myself and I don't need to hear, uh, I need encouragement. So I don't mean to misspeak, but. Or diminish that, that desire. Yeah. I just feel that I can count on myself more than I perhaps could have in those days in the back of the theater where I had so many doubts. I was determined but I had doubts, and I kept having to fight through those doubts. And I think over these years, what I've learned is that I can trust myself, and I can fight through the doubts. And it's always healthy to have doubts, because you don't want to go through life thinking you've got all the answers. Sure. Obviously, you know, that would never be the case. But I think I have more confidence. And I also have more respect for the, uh, for the industry. I didn't know enough in the beginning. I really didn't. Mm. I just kind of insinuated myself into a world that I that I wanted to be in. And I pushed myself in in a way that, you know, the only way I knew how by just doing some things. But now I have a great respect for what this world is about. Um, I see how hard people work. I see how much they care. And I see the flip side. And there are people that... Um, you know, I think maybe are in it for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. perhaps. But those aren't my judgments to make. And everybody has to do their own thing in the way that they can. But, yeah, I feel good about it all. <laughs> well, we talked earlier about living legends, the Gloria Steinems, the Carol Channings, and more. And the fact that I'm sitting in a room oh, with please. you <laughs> with a living legend, Daryl Roth, and that I got to be there at the beginning. I know. And that you trusted me early on to be uh, a representative of your own dream is not lost on me. And I am so in awe of you. I'm proud of you. And I'm and we're all sitting so here being thrilled. very teary. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, Daryl, thank, thank you for spending this time with me today. And my listeners are so lucky to have had this time to listen to you. Thank, thank you, you, love. Clouds can make the wind blow. Thank you so much for listening. Do you know there are over 120 episodes of Little Known Facts with Alana Levine at this point? So if you love this one, but you're a new listener, go back to the beginning and catch up. I promise you every episode will shed a light on an artist that inspires you in a whole new way. It is such a pleasure to make this podcast for you, and I hope if you love listening as much as I love making it, that you'll head over to my website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. There's a donation page, and truly, any donation, large or small, makes such a huge impact on my being able to make over 100 more episodes for you guys, so I really, really appreciate it. I record this podcast at the Hangar Studios in New York City. If you ever are interested in making your own podcast or any kind of recording, go to thehangerstudios.com and get more information on how they make the magic happen. Thanks for listening. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.